Lesson 7. How to Make Your Desires Materialize We have now covered the first lapse toward the land of heart's desire. Through definiteness, we decided on our destination. We took the first stride toward it through affirmation. By preparation, we came a long way. And as we came nearer, we recognized, in the last lesson, several entrance gates to the city of our dreams. It now remains for us only to pay the toll and pass through. The beauties inside the great city far overbalance the fee, but it must always be paid before we can enter. Each gate is a toll gate, but unlike a toll gate in that once you have paid the fee for that particular gate, you need never pay it again to enter it. Always thereafter, this gate is open to you to leave or enter at will. But if you wish to enter other sections of the beautiful city, you must go outside and enter from their front gates also, paying each its fee, after which that section is forever open to you to roam in as you choose. For although each constitutes a part of the wonderful city, each is separated from the others like the old Roman cities, where each section could be entered only from the great outer walls. Thus it is that any person may travel through any part or as many parts as he desires. If he prefers a restricted existence rather than pay the entrance fee, no one can make him go farther. But if he desires the widest knowledge, the richest experiences, the fullest success, he may, by paying the price for each, attain the right to roam at will through any and all that please him. Look around you and you will see that the vast majority of people make the former choice. They live and die in a few sections on the outskirts of life. They think in a few areas of their brains. They run the gamut of a few emotions over and over. They pay the price for a few of life's necessities and let it go at that. The sad part of it is that they put forth as much effort to maintain themselves in these narrow existences as would be required to earn the toll price into the larger ones. For although the fee itself is greater the farther you go, the easier and easier does it become to earn it. We face new problems and bigger ones, but they are easier to solve than the first ones because we have developed. It is this which makes it possible for the successful to be more successful with little effort. For the rich to make millions. For those who are already famous to win thousands of friends where the unloved and unknown make but one new friend a year, or none. Only those realize this who have tried it. The others remain behind because they assume that if it costs so much in hard work to get through the first few gateways, Going farther and doing more with one's life would require more strain and struggle than they are willing to make more than it is worth. Each human being must decide this for himself. But the greatest secret of the successful is that the greater the number of success, the easier becomes the gathering of the price and the richer the joys brought by each. In other words, the greater the worth, the easier the price. The distance we cover depends on the number of hurdles we are able to take and the speed with which we cover the distance between. We may run along for quite a while on smooth ground, thinking everything's going to be smooth from here on. But pretty soon, looming up ahead, we descry an obstacle. It may be a low one, which we scarcely notice, or it may be a high one. If we refuse to scale it, thinking it looks impossible, or if we are tired of running, we can stop right there and our progress ends. The scorer marks us up on the big board as having gotten so far. But if we draw upon our courage, we will always find that this hurdle, high and forbidding though it appears, is nothing compared to some of the first ones because we have developed strength from jumping those before. A strength we are not aware of till we put it to the test but which never fails us if we take a good running jump and try for it. All along the track, you will see splendid human souls who might have gone over the top and on under the wire as winners with the cheers and love of the multitude from life's grandstand to gladden them. But they didn't know it. 
They sank down beside the track and now watched the others pass them by. There come times in every human life when the game doesn't seem worth the candle, but it is. When the price looks bigger than the prize, but it never is. The price is always less when you come right down to paying it than it looks to be, just as a piece of work looks impossible as long as you postpone it, but is suddenly easy when you begin. Life always lets you make your own decisions, and she takes you at your word. Your words always express themselves in your secret attitudes. To try to fool others is bad enough, but to fool yourself is fatal. You can never really fool your subconsciousness. It knows whether you really want a thing or not, and whether you are in earnest. If you are not, it lets you alone. But if you are, it will find a way. It will help you get what you really want most. You may not believe it at first, but many poverty-stricken, sick, shiftless failures already have what they want most in life. They won't admit it to you, but in their inmost souls, they know it's true. They don't really want riches, health, and success most. They only wish they wanted these things most. What they really want most of all is doing what they please with their time, taking things easy, sleeping late, overeating, being free of responsibilities, and they are getting every one of them. They delude themselves with the notion that they are getting them for nothing, that success, health, and happiness would cost more. But the fact is that they are paying the highest price for the worst articles when the very best could be had at a bargain. If you have ever seen a man trying to get out of work, you know that he worked twice as hard at it as those who pitched in and did something. If you have ever seen one of those women who, as they constantly phrase it, had to save herself, you have seen one who wore herself out at the job. If you have ever seen a self-pampering invalid or a self-pitying person of any sort, you have seen someone who worked, like a Trojan, 24 hours a day and got nothing for it but the disease he was looking for, the troubles he anticipated, and the poverty he feared. Meanwhile, he enjoyed the things he really wanted most. Idleness, weakness, pretense, and he knows it. Your great subconscious will get for you the things you want most in life. It will do so more completely and more quickly than you can believe. It will do so with unerring accuracy and unfaltering, unswerving perfection. If you want happiness, success, fame, it will show you how to get them. They must be paid for, but the price is not as high as you think, not even as great as that we pay for failure. I often think of the world as a colossal department store. In it are all the things we want, displayed on the counters within reach of all, and to be had the moment we pay for them. If we really want the things we say we want, we will do what we always do to get the things we want in the store, walk up and pay for them, and take them. You see something you say you want, but if you are not willing to pay for it, Life knows you only wish for it. Offer to pay her the price and you will hear her whisper, this isn't really as expensive as marked. I will give you a reduction. And she takes off a large percentage. A friend in Denver once told me she wanted a new spring suit more than anything. We were walking down 16th Street a few days later and there in a front window, she saw the very suit she was looking for for $35. In the olden days, $35 actually bought a suit good enough for anybody, you remember. How lovely, I exclaimed. And to think, you have $35 right in your purse. Let's go right in and get it before somebody else does. Would she? No. She had said she wanted that suit more than anything else in the world. But she didn't even want it as much as she wanted the $35. She wished she had a new suit like this one, but what she really wanted was the money. But what about the person who hasn't the $35, I hear you ask? And the answer you will find is the utter truth. It is this. You can get it, honestly, legitimately, quickly, and surely, 
provided you want it. You can get it by giving up for it the leisure, false pride, or whatever it is that you have been preferring to that amount of money. In other words, if you have not the $35, it is because you have taken something else in preference to it. Because you chose consciously or subconsciously. To forego this money you might have been making rather than part with the time, energy, sleep, or good times which you took in its place. Decide to restrict yourself because you can't get the money for things you want and the money you do get will come that much harder. But make up your mind to make desires materialize all the money you need for the things you want and from the hour of reaching that decision, you will make $5 easier than you now make one. The richer you become, the easier it is to make money. The less you have, the more difficult to get more. To him that hath shall be given, and from him that hath not shall be taken away even that which he hath. It has often seemed that there was a deep injustice in this declaration of the scriptures, also a threat. But it is more of a promise than a threat, and more than all, it is a law. It is not something the Creator is going to do to you or against you. It is something you do to yourself. Once you decide to pay the price, things begin to come your way. More and bigger things gravitate to you and come with less effort than it took to get the first little ones. It is almost as if we find a storehouse of riches almost for the taking when we have once managed to get a window or door open. Often this is a surprise to us. All successful men and women who are frank will admit that many good things followed in the wake of that first big effort and followed almost without further effort. It is as if we looked through the front window of a store, saw something inside we wanted very much, and having paid the price for it, discovered that there was an endless supply of much more desirable and valuable things which we hadn't seen from the outside at all, available at much lower prices. Nothing succeeds like success is an old and true saying. Another not so old, but equally true, is that nothing failures like failure. The world always helps you along whichever way you are going. If you are headed uphill, it will help pull you up. If you are headed downhill, it will give you a push. We should not complain of this, but awaken to the fact that it is a law, and instead of fighting it, put it to work for us. If you want to go uphill, you must manifest this to the people around you. They are all driving along life's highway too, and they see you, think of you, and get an impression of you. If you want to go down, all you have to do is let it be known, and you will have plenty of kicks and company. The world gets one of its deepest impressions of you from the direction in which your car is moving. Everything about you tells what that is. Even children and those who catch a glimpse of you for only a moment sense this and act towards you accordingly. You never deceive them very much or very long in any way. Bluffing and pretending do not deceive anyone. These only make you resemble a man who tells you he is traveling north when at every corner possible, he turns south. All of life is a journey along the great highway. We are always coming to crossroads. We always make our own choice. We turn or go straight ahead, as we choose. We come to scores of these corners every day, and the world notes the turns we make. It will give you plenty of time to get to your destination in the north, and many a lift besides, provided at the crossroads you keep heading in that direction. Another strange thing about it is that the higher up you get, the more help the world gives you, and the lower down, the harder it kicks. You can see it for yourself. If you haven't a cent and ask the world for a quarter to keep you from starving, it will not give it to you very quickly or very graciously. It says it can't encourage that kind of thing. It is afraid you might not deserve it. But if you are a millionaire with more money than you know what to do with, people will gladly loan you millions. 
And if you happen to be a banker with greenbacks piled mountain high in vaults, they will come to you and ask you to make room for their extra money also. To the big dinners, the hungry are not invited. The guests are those already overfed. If a railway magnate drawing a salary of $200,000 a year takes a trip over another road, he travels on a pass with drawing rooms and special service. But if a tramp tries to steal a ride on a beam next to the wheels underneath, he is kicked off. The man with a library so big he doesn't have a chance to read half his books is the one to whom we present rare volumes, while he who has none gets none. The people who are surrounded by love, whom everyone loves, are the ones we also love, while those without it are ostracized. This is all true, you say, but how is one to get started in the right direction? Especially when, as you say, the whole world is busy helping us downgrade already. The answer is, change the cause, and you also change the effect. Your present condition, as pointed out in the previous lesson, is the natural and inevitable growth of the attitudes and feelings harbored in your subconscious mind. Most people secretly cherish the delusion that this is not a law-ruled universe and that somehow they will be able to get something for nothing. Look again at the word harbored, for it reveals the crux of your situation. All kinds of things come into your consciousness. You can't help seeing and hearing and even sometimes thinking these destructive things. But you can refuse to harbor them. The things that get down into your subconscious mind come out in your life. But remember, nothing can get into your subconscious mind save as you dwell upon it and encourage it. But how can I start forward now from this very spot? you ask. To begin to go uphill in life instead of down, to get the help of your own powers and those of other people in your uphill climb, it is only necessary for just now that you turn around. Other things will come later, but for today, this will be enough. It will not be necessary for you to make a great showing or scale a peak or two today. In fact, I will ask you not even to think of the twists and turns and detours you may imagine lie ahead. To get the price for anything you want, gently open your mind to the idea that you can get it somewhere, somehow. Do not dwell upon the things which just now seem to stand in the way of your getting it. In doing this, it is not necessary to dump out by main force the old, weak outlooks you have been harboring up to now. It is a law that two things cannot occupy the same place at the same time. So turning your attention toward the good thought drives the bad one out. Soon this becomes a habit, and then out of your subconscious will come the ideas of how to get the price of what you want. There is an old saying, you can't have your cake and eat it too. We are facing every hour of our waking lives the question, Shall I eat this cake now and be without it in the future, or shall I keep it and have it then? The vast majority of people make the mistake of greedily devouring all of life's cake in youth and early adulthood. They leave school for something pleasanter and pay the price by being compelled to do the bitterly unpleasant things at small pay in their old age or until they back up and pay the long-evaded price by the study which every grown person can follow for self-education. They follow their instincts instead of their ideals and wonder in later life why the good things, the great and beautiful things, have passed them by. People look for a soft snap now and in future years resent the soft snap which another, who has earned it, enjoys. Albert Hubbard told many things when he said, Blessed is he who is not looking for a soft snap, for he is the only one who shall find it. Walk up to life's counter and pay for what you want. You will find that many valuable premiums go with every cash purchase. Refuse to pay, and she treats you as the store treats those who are just looking around. Spend your time trying to cheat life, and she will treat you as the store treats the bargain hunter. Try to take anything away for nothing, 
and she treats you as a shoplifter. A pair of middle-aged twin brothers come to my mind vividly whenever I think of this law of compensation. I recently dined at the home of the successful one. The other dropped in for a chat during the evening, after which we dropped him at home on the way to our hotel. I had gone to school with them and knew the life story of both. They had equal advantages, equal opportunities, equal training, equal heredity, an equal chance in every way. One was always looking for the easiest way, and the other for the best way. I will call the former E and the latter B. E considered himself much smarter than his brother and thought him a fool to go to so much trouble. His attitude was that by keeping one's eyes open and being shrewd, one could somehow get the best in life when the gods were not looking. Instead of going after what he wanted in the straight way, he was always on the lookout for a little side path that would be easier. When they were boys at home, E induced B to do part of his work around home, to carry in his share of the wood, to milk the cow on the nights when it was his turn, and all such things. For this, he held himself in secret esteem, thinking how clever he was, and his brother in secret contempt for being an easy mark. He didn't realize, of course, that the more extra work we give ourselves in youth, the stronger our backs become, and that every time B did him a favor, he indirectly did two for himself. When they went away to school, they shared a room. E took the best bed, the largest clothes closet, and waited for his brother to make the great fire every morning. Knowing B would help him cram for examinations, he neglected his studies and sat near enough to his brother to copy his answers on test days. When he had spent his own share of their allowance, he borrowed from B and failed to pay it back. When he had neglected to send his laundry out, he borrowed his brother's collars for parties. B didn't need them so often. He didn't go to so many parties. A little slow, E thought him. But B was not as slow as he looked. He too wanted to cut classes and ditch studies when the gang dropped in and invited him out for a lark. But he had imagination and ambition. Through the former, he could see what such a course would do to his education. And through the latter, he was spurred to look for bigger game. Through his common sense and intelligence, he was able to see that the jolly times of the present were not worth sacrificing his future for, the worthwhile future he always had in mind. He could see it was a small change in comparison, so paid it out day after day in the things he gave up. When they had graduated, both were offered political positions at good salaries through the pull of their father, a prominent state senator. E accepted, but B declined. He too liked the excitement and white lights of the big capital city, but decided to go into the Northwest to work in a logging camp. The salary was less, and he would be 30 miles from the nearest town, but he was thinking it would give him better opportunities for a future. I need not give you more details, though the whole story is interesting beyond measure. The significant fact is that today, B is a millionaire lumberman of Seattle, famed for his big heart and level head, and E is a clerk in his office. As we drove home that evening, E made the usual excuses for himself and the usual criticism of the more successful brother. I work eight hours every day, he complained. My own brother puts in about four, closes his desk at two in the afternoon, and goes out to play golf. I get a salary and he has millions. I live in a boarding house and he in a mansion. Life certainly has favored him. Giving up the little things now pays big dividends in the tomorrows. What are you giving up today, this very day and hour, in order that a year from today may be bigger and better? If nothing, you may be sure you are eating next year's bread today. Furthermore, a slice foregone today grows into many loaves by a year from today. Successful men and women, whether you can realize it or not, are only cashing in on their past efforts, sacrifices, and hardships. The failure has as surely chosen to live in the hour, letting tomorrow take care of itself. 
When tomorrow must take care of itself, it cannot, in addition, take care of you. Take care of yourself today, and tomorrow will take care of you. Another story from life comes to my mind about two young women who grew up in the same small town and were chums through their public school days. The parents of both were poor, but G's not so quite as destitute as were L's. When it came time to go to college, each knew she would have to earn her way through if she got further education. G could not bring herself to work for her room and board as L did. Her pride, she declared, couldn't permit her to. She married a cafe owner whom, she confided to L, she didn't really love, but he made enough that she could take life easy. This she proceeded to do while Elle was away at the university doing housework for her board and room, janitor work in one of the university buildings for her tuition, and library work for her clothes. G lived a pleasant life in their little hometown with a servant of her own, pretty clothes, a horse and buggy, this was in pre-auto days, and took life pleasantly in general. How can you give up four whole years, she asked Elle, who was home for a few days at Christmas, when you'll have nothing to show for it at the end of that time except a few ideas. You'll be that much older, less attractive, less eligible. I wouldn't change places with you for anything. Why, to think of you doing plain, ordinary housework like my Hannah and janitoring like old Mrs. Whitby, the scrub woman, it's silly. Why don't you come home, marry some nice man while you're still young enough to get one, and act like the rest of us? But Elle kept on, through the hardships which horrified G were nothing compared to the heartaches nobody ever knew about. She didn't mind the work, but how she did mind never having a day or an hour of her own. How her soul yearned when on Saturdays other young men and women went laughing past the house and took the streetcar for the football game. How she ate her heart out because not a single one of the young men ever asked her to go anywhere. Of course, she could not have spared the time to go if he had, but it would have been such a consolation to be invited. She knew, of course, that it didn't help matters any for her to be seen at four o'clock every afternoon in brogans and denim skirt, scrubbing down the old circular stairs as her fellow students filed out from late classes. By the time Elle had graduated, G was tiring of her cafe-owning husband, who wanted babies in the house and was thinking of the divorce which she soon after secured. Her alimony was sufficient to keep her in pretty things and a fair living, so she came to the big city where Elle was now taking her postgraduate course. Elle, with her seriousness, plainness, and studiousness, was more of a mystery than ever to G, who insisted that she drop those moldy old books and have some fun. G soon married again, a bond salesman this time, but he died some years later, leaving her only $6,000 in life insurance. This was soon spent on the clothes and travel which she considered necessary to catching a new mate, but by this time she was so much older and so overweight from self-indulgence that she was not successful. Today she works in a St. Louis drugstore for $21 a week, and complains that life has never treated her as well as it did her old friend Elle. L, by the way, after 30 years of unrelenting mental and physical effort, made a million. She is happily married to a brilliant, broad-minded man, and they do together the work they both love. It simply isn't fair, Wales G. Some people get everything. In his famous essay, Compensation, Emerson says, The law is eternal. Nothing in nature is given. All things are sold. And he might have added, to the highest bidder. For nature is somewhat like an auctioneer. She has no favorites. He who is willing to pay most gets most, and he who pays least gets least. You cannot see the wheels go round, but they do. Nature also keeps books, the most accurate set in the universe, and on them each of us can have a charge account every so often payable. Then one day, she comes in person to collect. No duns, no bills in advance, no notice, just the price on demand. When for any reason she gives you plenty of time, think not that she has forgotten. She will come upon you unawares, 
hands you her bill with compound interest, and you must meet it on the spot. But if you pay cash for her wares, you are on her favored list as a valued customer. You will always get the best she has, and gifts besides. The really brainy people meet her obligations in advance. They know that with real success, it is pay as you enter. The price of success is never as high nor as hard to get as the failures have been frightened into thinking. In life, as in many other things, the cheapest is the best. Dreams fulfilled, said someone, are things bought and paid for. It all depends on whether we are ready to pay the marked price or wait till bargain day. Frank Crane says, every man's career is a struggle between the two natures in us, the angel and the brute. The first thing to do, therefore, is to recognize that all decent life must be in terms of conflict. Because you feel this unceasing war within you is no sign that you are bad or selfish or meaner than other people. You are simply human. You might as well complain that you do not have three hands or that you do not possess supernatural powers of vision or hearing as to complain that your inclination does not always agree with your duty. Having recognized this fact, don't worry over it. Don't grow morbid. Don't call yourself names. Don't develop self-contempt. And above all, don't get into the mire of self-pity. It's a fight. You have to make it. Go to it gaily, with high courage, and with gladness that you are disposed to fight and sure to win. You can always dodge the fight by yielding to your lower nature. But you know the nasty side of that. It means a weak, flabby, unclean mind, a spirit that must loathe itself. But you can be much more comfortable than the sensualist if you will make up your mind that you will do what is right every time, no matter how you feel. This will not give you the same kind of pleasure that the self-indulgent have, but a far better kind. For there are two sorts of enjoyment, one that of yielding, the other that of overcoming. And it is the overcomer who gets the crown of life. For instance, there is pleasure in lying in bed and eating and drinking and gratifying the various animal cravings of the body, also in reading books that divert you but require no mental effort, in going to the theater, in being flattered, praised, complimented. In all these things, your pleasure is passive. There is pleasure, on the other hand, in exercise, in going without food and drink that would harm you, in denying the body's demands so as to satisfy the wants of your intelligence, of pleasing your conscience by trampling on an appetite, of intellectual discipline, etc. All these are the soldier kind of joys. They are better than the soft kind because they last longer. They strengthen your mind and body. They make your tastes finer, your whole enjoyment of life keener, your range of delights wider, and altogether, you get a deal more fun out of living. The latter joys are just as selfish as the former, but an intelligent selfishness is unselfish. He that saves his life shall lose it. Scientifically speaking, all you have to do to go to hell is do nothing at all. The wind blows that way. Just do as you please. Don't resist. Gratify all desires, never mind conscience, and hell will be along pretty soon. Heaven is uphill all the way, but it's keen and bracing exercise. It means a healthier body, livelier mind, and happier spirit every day. And at the top, you always get the morning star. Crane goes on to say, life has been called all sorts of things. Life is a dream, a gambling game an opportunity to get all the fun and the least pain possible, a probation preparatory to the next life, a value of tears, etc. Suppose we consider life as a business proposition. Look at it from a practical, profit and loss, shrewd and common sense viewpoint. Very well. First, what can we get out of it? Only wages. There are no endowed and privileged ones. All are day laborers. For everyone, when the work's over, must leave all he has gained and go back to that nothingness from which he came, as stark naked and poor as when he arrived. 
All the billionaire gets out of life is exactly what the bricklayer gets, his board and clothes and amusements. It's happiness we all strive for, of one kind or another, whether beer and cakes or turtled feasts, overalls or dress suits, pinochle on a cracker box, or stock gambling on the market. Social distinction, wealth display, political success, intellectual achievement, it's all happiness according to taste. How is happiness to be secured? How can one be sure to get his pay? By finding out what he really wants. This is not so easy. Most people work a lot for what they think other people think they want. How can one find that out? By ascertaining these forms of pleasure that are frauds and bring on misery. The conclusive argument against drunkenness, licentiousness, and the like is that they are swindles, gold bricks. They promise joy and pay suffering. How can one tell what sorts of things pay and what sorts do not pay? By the collective experience of mankind and by accepting the guidance of reliable teachers. The cumulative experience of mankind shows that only those acts pay which are fundamentally just, fair, honest, and kind. What's the good of morality? Morals rest not upon authority, but are the masked wisdom of the world. The person who is not moral is a fool. He is a sucker, a greenhorn, fully as much as the country Jake who thinks he can beat Wall Street experts. Immorality docks the happiness pay envelope every day. If you are helpful, unselfish, courteous, patient, reverent, loyal, just, and benevolent, you get a large daily bonus. If you imagine that crafty, unclean, cruel, or conscienceless people are happy, get right well acquainted with one and see. Why work? If it's happiness that is our wage, why not eat, drink, and be merry? Why not loaf and play? Because human beings are so constituted that they secure the maximum of satisfactory self-expression only by doing some part of the world's work. Why study to improve the mind or to develop one's spiritual capacities? Why not go in for all the fun we can get each day? Because by increasing our mental and spiritual powers, we get the more permanent, the higher, and rarer forms of happiness. We get gold and not copper. What we call goodness more than pays every day. It leaves something over, a deposit, in the bank of happiness, which becomes a reserve fund from which we draw dividends. When I was about 11, I belonged to a church in a little Western mining camp. Of the many experiences it engraved on my mind, none went deeper than one which occurred at a Wednesday night prayer meeting. A man who had usually been silent before arose and said, never ask God anything unless you really want it and are willing to pay for it. As some of you know, I had been out of work for several months, against my will, as I told myself, when I finally prayed earnestly for something to open up. It wasn't a week till I had a good job offered me, and then I realized I hadn't wanted it at all. I really preferred letting the rest of the family earn the living. But God took me at my word. That is the gospel truth exclaimed a little woman whose sharp tongue had got her the nickname Mrs. Pepper. I asked God to make me more loving. Shortly afterwards, I was thrown with a lot of people. It was mighty hard to love, but I knew God had taken me at my word to teach me not to order things if I wasn't in earnest. I knew I didn't deserve any credit for loving pleasant, attractive, congenial people. I knew real love meant loving everybody the uncongenial, unpleasant, and unattractive. Since that, I do not bother God for anything unless I am willing to take the bother of paying for it. The law of compensation is an impersonal, almost mathematical one, not the arbitrary thing it sometimes appears to be. You will get a clearer understanding of this if you will think of your life as a crowded pantry shelf. To make room for anything else, you would have to remove from that shelf something you wanted less. 
So it is with your life. It is full. But what of? Leisure, pleasure, ease, self-indulgence? No, you will say, only a little of these. Very well, says the law of compensation. If you want something you haven't got, merely take off the shelf something you already have and make room for the newer and better and more desired thing. Take off some of the idleness and put effort in its place. Take off some of the mental laziness and put study in its place. Take off some of the indefiniteness and put plan in its place. Take off some of the frivolities and put things more worthwhile and sensible in their place. And soon you will have this thing you want. You will have filled yourself of life. No one but you can say what shall remain upon it and what, if anything, be removed. Take your choice. The Law of Materialization We have now come to the last lap of our journey into the land of heart's desire. It remains only to enter into the city of our dreams. Through affirmation, preparation, and compensation, we have come to materialization. We have planted the seeds and are ready for the harvest, which never fails. We have remade our own spirits through the remaking of our moods. We have decided definitely just what we want. We have set up the gauges. We have taken every necessary step. We have builded the strong foundation of preparation. We have learned how to find the many doors of opportunity and recognize them. We have learned that the price for passing through each and on into more and more beautiful things is not unobtainable, but easy to get. That everything we want awaits us as soon as we have fulfilled the eternal laws which operate behind all materialization. Thousands of men and women have written me the story of the successes which crowned their efforts as soon as they had stopped groping, sidestepping, or drifting, and applied the simple but eternal laws which I have explained to you in these lessons. I wish I might reprint everyone, for truth is stranger than fiction and also more interesting. But I will select typical ones that we have space for. I will let each tell you his story in his own words. How I Overcame Wrong Attitudes and Attained Happiness by Maria Kirkwood, New Orleans. I grew up in a family that tried to live on its traditions. Both of my parents had been reared in the luxury of slave-owning surroundings before the Civil War, and could not adjust themselves to newer ones. The good old days and the hopelessness of the new were favorite topics of conversation. Myself and sister, who made up the rest of the family, were trained in the old-fashioned ways and taught that instead of looking for careers, we should find some nice men and marry. But the nice men did not arrive on the scene, at least not the ones we wanted, and the family finances dwindled year after year till it became necessary for me to go to work. I was then past 30, with no training whatever, but with the family idea of personal superiority strong within me. I looked weeks before I found anything to do, and then the pay was so small I would not have considered it had I not needed it so badly. The work was not difficult, and I did it efficiently and without much effort. I therefore wondered why my pay was not raised, as promised, when the month of probation was over. But my employer would make no explanations. Instead, I was told my services were no longer needed. I got other positions, but lost each one in turn, apparently for some mysterious reason which no one would mention to me. In spite of my admittedly good work, I could not hold a place long enough to be promoted or secure even an average wage. As soon as I would become familiar with my work and begin to congratulate myself on how well I was doing, out I would have to go. It may help others if I explain here that I had been taught to be efficient, that I preferred to do things well, that I took pride in my personal appearance, tried to make myself as useful as possible to my employers, and in every way lived up to all the rules which are supposed to lead to success. One night, at the request of the head of my department, who had heard her in Denver many years before, I attended Mrs. Benedict's lecture. 
I was not interested in psychology, human analysis, personality, or similar subjects. I considered them fads, too far-fetched and impractical to apply to everyday life. Almost her first words were, your predominant mental attitudes make your life. It sounded impossible, stated baldly like that, and I inwardly resisted it with some arguments of my own for a few minutes. She went on to explain how and why this was so, piling illustration upon illustration, proof upon proof, until when she walked off the platform an hour and a half later, I could not believe I had been in that auditorium more than 10 minutes. I was too proud to admit to my friend that any of her talk struck me, but I knew it did. As we walked to the corner, my friend said, Maria, I wanted you especially to come with me tonight, for I like you, and I don't want us to lose track of each other even if you do leave the office. I was thunderstruck and asked her what she meant. I mean, she said, that the manager told me today he was going to let you go on the first, and I felt I ought to tell you so you could do something about it. You could if you only would, and I know how much you'd like to stay. I asked her to explain, and she said, Maria, you are a very dependable worker. You are quick and keen and have initiative. And Mr. J admits it, but he said he knew you felt superior to the rest of the girls at heart, and they all know it too. He said he had Miss D's position in mind for you when she leaves next month, but she is in charge of four girls, and none of them wants to work under you. I asked her permission to go to the manager for another chance, and did so the next morning. Meanwhile, I spent most of the night taking stock of myself. I knew this secret attitude of superiority had always dominated my inmost mind and had gotten me a deal of satisfaction, but I could readily see what it had done to my life. I had then been working for seven years and was getting a much smaller salary than others of similar experience. I recalled how just this thing had happened every time in spite of the high quality of my work. I had never expressed this attitude in words, but I realized, of course, that it had always talked as plainly as any words could. I fought it out with myself that night and went straight to the manager next morning, confessing the truth frankly and promising to overcome it if he would give me another chance. He acquiesced, and I went at it in earnest. I determined to eliminate the effect by uprooting the cause, as Mrs. Benedict suggested, not merely pretend. I did not miss one of her lessons. She showed me the way so simply, sanely, and scientifically that it was really easy. That was four years ago. I am now the manager myself in that firm and far happier than I ever expected to be. I am writing this in the hope that it will give others the realization the lack of which stood in my way so many years. How I Succeeded in Salesmanship by John C. McDonald, Chicago. Two years ago, I heard you lecture in Milwaukee. At that time, I was employed in the shipping department of one of the leading stores. I had tried selling, but without success. I had a fairly pleasant personality, at least my friends said I had, and I was determined. I liked salesmanship more than any other kind of work and was never happy at anything else. But every time I tried it, I failed completely. Once, I sold books. Another time period, furniture. And at another, automobiles. All I had ever accomplished was the spending of money I had saved each time for my venture. Then back I'd have to go to a clerkship. Of all the things in the lessons, the newest and most unbelievable to me was what you said, Mrs. Benedict, about the power of affirmation. I was 31 at this time, more or less of a skeptic, and the idea that talking to oneself could be anything but the sign of a cracked mind was rather a joke. I remember laughing at it on the way home that night with another man of the class. He finally said, I'd have said the same thing at your age, but I'm older now. And one of the things my experience has taught me is the power which thinking or saying anything over in one's mind has on his conduct. I thought about it while getting ready for bed and almost constantly the next day. By the time I reached the auditorium for the next night's lesson, I had a gleam. I recognized that the reason for my failures was not the talk I gave my prospects, but that which I gave myself. I had had a whole set of affirmations and didn't know it. 
only they were the wrong kind. I never approached a customer without thinking to myself, now I'll bet he doesn't want my stuff. He's going to resist me, sure as shooting. To overcome his opposition, what shall I say? It probably won't do a bit of good, but I'll tell him this. It was only the truth that I told them, and it would have sold them frequently, I now know, if I hadn't been so unsold on myself. The more I thought of it, the more I understood that my big obstacle was not selling the goods. I could do that, I knew, but selling myself to myself. And you had said this was the biggest thing affirmation could do for us. I began to come to and to see how completely my negative affirmations had hurt me. I decided to get myself out of reserve. I won't trouble you with more details, except to say that today I am in Chicago, where competition is far keener than it was in Milwaukee, and that for the past year, I have averaged just eight times as much as I ever got before. I've waited to write you about it so you could see it was no sudden thing, but the kind that lasts. For your own information and those placed as I was, I might add that I used several kinds of affirmations before I decided on one that suited me. I finally settled on this, and I never approached a customer or prospect without saying it, thinking it, feeling it, looking at it from my eyes, and acting it. I have something useful to this man. It is worth all I am asking for it, and I am helping him by bringing it to his attention whether he buys from me or not. Instead of wondering whether or not he was going to buy, I concentrated on making it so clear to him that he couldn't help seeing it. I said further, he will sense my sincerity and that will help me make the sale. I won't think about the words. I'll simply express my honest enthusiasm over my product in whatever words come to me at the time. I have studied my line from A to Z. I was so full of it that I had more proofs than I ever needed. I was a success from the first week. How I Mastered an Overmastering Sorrow by Mrs. A.C. Downs, San Francisco My only son went to war and was killed in the Argonne Forest in 1918. When I received the news, all the goodness and gladness went out of life for me. My husband and three daughters were almost as heartbroken as I, but I could think of nothing and nobody except myself and my poor boy. Our home became a place of gloom, and I am a bitter, stricken, resentful woman. I stopped attending church. What right had God, I cried, to send me a wonderful boy, and just as he reached his glorious blooming, take him away? I had my name removed from the organizations to which I belonged even the Red Cross. I accepted no invitations, encouraged no one to come to our house, and went nowhere whatever. I was fast becoming a self-pitying recluse when one of your little books, The Fallacy of Grief, fell into my hands from the daughter who had heard some of your lectures. I read it at first only with contempt for one who, doubtless without having had any such experience herself, dared to condone the wrong that had been done me. Later, when my daughter explained that this little book had been minted out of Mrs. Benedict's own great sorrow, I relented and read it again and then again. By the time I got around to wanting to hear her, she had left the city. But I had this one little book. It made of me a different woman. When she returned two years later, I had regained my faith and understanding and resumed once more my place as the mother of three lovely young girls whom I had been neglecting had once more become helpful wife, was doing my bit and giving my might for civic betterment. How I Got What I Wanted by George F. Wallach, Seattle Early one evening in June 1920, I was passing the Masonic Temple in Seattle. A billboard in the foyer attracted my attention. It announced Mrs. Benedict's lectures for that week. Groups of people were going in, and I followed the crowd. I have always been sorry I did not note the day of the month, for it marked the great turning point in my life. You can get anything in this world you really want, said Mrs. Benedict during the course of the lecture. Of course, I didn't swallow that preposterosity. She asked us to decide between then and the next evening just what we wanted more than anything else in the world and get that much of a start before the class opened. 
I didn't need to decide. I had known for 28 years exactly what I wanted and why I wanted it and what I would do if I ever got it. But of course, I didn't expect it. The idea, however, that you could actually get anything you wanted was so ridiculous that I went back the next evening and joined the class just to see how she was going to extricate herself from the tangle. Naturally, I listened to everything she said in the light of my own long-cherished ambition. This was to own a large stock-raising business and breed high-grade horses and cattle. I had worked at various things and been trusted and respected, but I had never been able to save enough to start at what I wanted to do. Through those lessons, I found what had been holding me back. It came to me in a story she told from life about the man who was so sure his business was going to fail that he went to the bank to borrow some money. This was in a small city, and his bankers were well acquainted with him personally. Knowing him to be convinced that his business was going to the wall, they refused to lend him the money. He offered it for sale to two young men, and the bank loaned them the money instantly. For the young men were positive they could make a big success of the business, and the bankers knew that with this spirit, they were sure to win. The story jolted me out of a rut and waked me up. Next morning, I went to several men who had known me in and around Seattle for 20 years and told them what I wanted to do. They knew my experience and, seeing my enthusiasm and determination, were induced to back me for a start. I am now out of debt and the owner of my dream. How I Attained My Ambition by Helen V. Thurston, New York City I have long felt that I owed it to other aspiring women to write the little story of how I realized my own ambitions. I have hesitated because it is almost impossible to talk about one's own affairs without appearing conceited. However, those who wish to will have to call me that. I am writing this just as it happened, for the sake of the others who need the same things that happened to me. I won't bore you with the story of my life, but to see how much New York meant to me and why I felt it was the center of the universe, I will explain that I grew up in a little Minnesota town near Minneapolis. I was ambitious to become a commercial artist, to illustrate books and advertisements and all such things. Like every child, I took to a pencil like a duck to water, and early in life, my fond parents knew I was going to be one of the world's geniuses. But I was an only child, and they could not think of my leaving home. As I grew older, they talked me out of planning on New York, the one place, of course, where I wanted to go and where I knew I must go to succeed in this work. Everyone agreed that since more than 99% of all American books and national magazines were published there, I could never be a real success anywhere else. But they also regaled me with a competition I would meet, the loneliness I would have to combat, and the failure that almost surely awaited me. At last, when I was 24 and had about decided I never could have done it anyway, Mrs. Benedict gave a few lectures in the city auditorium of Minneapolis, and I attended. I stopped thinking at the powers that would compete with me and oppose me in New York and began to do what she advised. Think of my own powers. I decided to go. When my parents knew I was in earnest, they were glad, for they admitted they had been a little disappointed in my not having gone on with my ambition. I announced my intention to my friends, burning my bridges behind me, as Mrs. Benedict advised, and the following spring arrived in New York. It was one of those dampish, drizzly, chilly late afternoons in April when I landed, and I pretty nearly lost hope but I dug Mrs. Benedict's book out of my suitcase and spent the evening reading it in my little white cotted room at the Hotel Martha Washington. By the time I was ready for sleep, I knew nothing could down me. I read that book till I had to have it rebound. Every time I'd see a telling sentence in it, I could fairly see Mrs. Benedict standing there as she had on the platform in Minneapolis saying, I believe in you. Go ahead, make your plans and preparations, and you'll win. I didn't find things easy, as you may know. The field was crowded to bursting, and I was as green as grass. But I grew, and I ripened, and I stuck. 
For almost two years now, I have been making a splendid salary as a designer in a big cloak manufacturing house. My parents live here now, so we are not separated after all, and the world looks wonderful.